Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. This is part two of our two-part series on urologic emergencies with doctors Natalie Wolpert and Yona Krakowski. In part one, we cover the management nuances of priapism and urinary retention. If you haven't already, try out the 10-question quiz we posted in the EM Cases Quiz Vault to help solidify your knowledge from that podcast. In this podcast, we're going to discuss a urologic emergency that unfortunately is missed more often than we'd like because, as you'll hear, the history, the physical, and even imaging can be misleading. After that, Dr. Kukowski is going to hit us with three common urologic-related things that he wished ED docs knew about or did that they sometimes overlook. Let's start off with the case. A 20-year-old previously healthy man comes in at 4 a.m. with one hour of excruciating right testicular pain that radiates to his right lower quadrant and right flank. He's been vomiting. There's no fever, no preceding lower urinary tract infection symptoms, nothing else on history. As you walk into the room, he's still vomiting. Looks like he's in excruciating pain. So this case is a relatively straightforward one. We're all thinking this could be testicular torsion, but often these cases aren't so straightforward and often the classic symptoms and signs are not present. Hence the fact that about 30% of cases of failed testicular salvage can be attributed to misdiagnosis and another 13% to delay in treatment after the diagnosis has been made. So we all know that time is testes, but what can we be definitive about when it comes to salvaging the testes from time of onset? Is there a time beyond which we can safely presume that the testicle is dead and we don't need to rush to definitive treatment? Dr. Kukowski? I think the answer to that is probably no. We know the rates of salvage are much higher the sooner to the presentation. It's not that dissimilar from the priapism conversation we had. It's no blood flow to the testes. You know, even anecdotally, recently I saw someone 72 hours from onset. It was in the States, didn't want to go to a healthcare provider there. Came back, uh, was delayed, ended up seeing us uh, at our emergency department 72 hours later. Ultrasound, because we had time we thought showed no flow. We still took him to the OR because it was really paining him. He was in a tremendous amount of discomfort. And the testicle was salvageable. And I don't know if that's because throughout those 72 hours, he was torting and detorting and torting and detorting. I don't know if there was some collateral or, or some other form of something, but we saved the testicle. So I think the learning point is either way, you have to have a really good reason not to explore. I mean, if it's been two months and you had an ultrasound then and an ultrasound now, maybe you have a reason not to. You're going to go inside that scrotum anyways, usually, because once you've had torsion on one side, the other side is likely at a higher risk for torting due to what's called a bell clapper deformity. So either way, you're going to be going in there eventually to secure that other testicle so it doesn't happen again, because lightning can strike twice more, more likely even than someone that had it the first time. So I think the answer is always take that person to the operating room. One thing I want to bring up about timing and torsion is no patient with testicular torsion presents at nine in the morning. They all come in at three in the morning so when you do not have ultrasound available. I've never consulted urology for a testicular torsion during daytime hours when they're in hospital. It's just, it's really amazing. Um, but I would agree with Yona. I've certainly seen 
cases on both sides of the spectrum, cases where patients presented in what seemed like a salvageable time window who went to surgery and had a testicle that was not salvageable. And then I've seen patients present in a time that I thought we were really beyond the time period of helping that patient, but still went ahead with the, you know, urgent ultrasound and urology consultation, and they were able to obtain salvage. And uh, I think, as you mentioned, that's likely related to some element of intermittent blood flow, torsion, detorsion. And then I've also seen uh, on the other side of the spectrum if patients who have come in with pain that has resolved, that in retrospect was you know, torsion, detorsion, who subsequently presented with testicle loss related to ischemia, who were given a diagnosis of epididymitis initially based on initial ultrasound findings. So I think it's a really complex minefield of patients, and we'll probably get into this later in terms of ultrasound findings, sometimes misdirecting your initial diagnosis, and just to always really keep that torsion-detorsion top of mind in patients who are presenting with acute testicular pain. Might not change what you do in the emergency department, but in terms of patient discharge instructions, it's really imperative. Okay, so while it's less likely that the testicle will be salvageable as time goes by, it certainly doesn't rule out that it could be salvageable even up to 72 hours. Yeah, a few of the patients I've seen who ended up having non-salvageable testicles uh, were situations in which they had had pain prior and actually by the time they presented to the emergency department were no longer having pain, you know, sort of suggesting that the ischemic event was over, but had very abnormal physical exams in keeping with, you know, the catastrophic event that had happened. So the patient with ongoing pain, to me, that, you know, suggests maybe there's some ongoing ischemia that's reversible. Great point. So there's actually a lot of nuance in this diagnosis. Uh, as you alluded to, Dr. Wolpert, the ultrasound findings are often not accurate. And so we'll get into that in a minute. I want to go through each kind of step of the way. The classic presentation of testicular torsion is a younger person, less than 40 years old, with unilateral pain and swelling of the testes, an abnormal cremasteric reflex, high position of the testicle, horizontal lie, and nausea and vomiting. But I want to drill down into each of these one by one. So let's start with the age. You know, I've heard many urologists say that testicular torsion is so rare over the age of 40 that it really shouldn't even be considered in the differential diagnosis of a patient with acute scrotal pain. On the other hand, I've also read in studies that there are a certain percentage, small, but they do occur that patients over the age of 40 actually have true testicular torsion. How can we use age in our decision-making when it comes to acute scrotal pain and swelling? Yeah, I agree with sort of the uh, former opinion. I think it's incredibly rare to see someone over the age of 40 with their first episode of torsion, like incredibly rare. I was recently looking into it. I think there's one study that kind of quantified how rare it is, and it's like case reports only of people in their 60s and 70s with torsion. The reason behind that is people get torsion not from getting kicked in the scrotum or something like that, but it's an anatomic abnormality of the cord. And someone that's going to get torsion because of their anatomic abnormality would have got it in their teenage years and not, you know, in their fifth decade of life. You talk about when is it good to get an ultrasound or not. When things don't add up, like you see a 45-year-old with their first episode, I would, you know, put lots of money on this being an epididymitis or an orchalgia over a torsion. And I'd love to get an ultrasound before exploring that person, if possible, in a timely fashion. 
So I'm pretty clear from getting a testicular torsion. That's good. That's one thing I can tick off the list of yeah, disasters I, that I think will all three very of us unlikely are, happen to me. <laughs> all three of us are clear here, I'd say. Okay. I think one of us is really especially in the clear. Yeah. <laughs> like super unlikely. <laughs> Suffice to say that extraordinarily rare to have a testicular torsion for the first time over the age of 40, but there have been case reports. So if you have someone presenting with classic symptoms otherwise, it's not impossible in the older ages. All right. What about the position of the testes? So classically, again, the testes in torsion, it's elevated and horizontal. How accurate actually is this finding of the elevated horizontal lie of the testes? Well, one thing to note is in a patient with acute torsion or an acute epididymitis or chitis, any sort of acute, painful, swollen testicle hemiscrotum, it's sometimes difficult to actually palpate the testicle discreetly to determine the lie. It's often just a very, very swollen, tender, indurated area. So I think when you see that horizontal lie, uh, I think your likelihood of Torsion is much higher, but bearing in mind that these are often difficult exams, even to discern the anatomy clearly. Okay, so in terms of the lie and the elevation, it's a classic sign, but again, it's far from a slam dunk, and often it's hard to even determine because of all the swelling around there. Talking about swelling, how discriminatory are swelling and edema of the testes for torsion? I mean, do most patients with torsion have swelling? Do you see lots of patients without swelling at all? I would say it's a very sensitive sign, but really non-specific in terms of other etiologies of pain. So uh, I think Dr. Wolpert's point's great. It's, you know, doing a regular scrotal exam can have an element of adventure. Doing it on someone with 10 out of 10 pain can be impossible. But uh, swelling and, you know, pain, swelling, an abnormal-looking scrotum, I think, is a very sensitive sign for torsion, for sure. You don't see a completely normal-looking scrotum in cases of torsion. All right. So sensitive but not specific. Of course, often we're faced with whether this patient has epididymitis or a torsion. And when it comes to epididymitis, there's friend sign. And that's the one when uh, you elevate the testes, then patients get some relief of their pain. Um, and that's kind of the classic sign for epididymitis. Does the presence of friend sign help to rule out testicular torsion at all? I'm not going to use any specific clinical finding to rule out torsion personally in somebody who has acute onset pain and has significant testicular findings. I personally do feel somewhat comfortable in examining a patient and identifying this as likely epididymitis. You know, you can feel an isolated, indurated, firm, tender epididymis, and the testicle itself feels fairly normal and you have a normal cremasteric. I'm still going to ultrasound that patient. But in the patient who has what looks to me an exam or a history that's concerning for torsion, who then has Prensign, I'm not going to use that as a rule-out rule. So you can see where I'm going with all this here is that although some of these signs have some pretty good sensitivity, some of them have some pretty good specificity, there's really no single finding on history or physical that can rule in or rule out torsion. So all these patients need to be worked up. 
Occasionally, I'll have a medical student review a case with me, you know, a young person with acute onset testicular pain, and they'll describe an exam that sort of suggests maybe they haven't had a lot of experience doing the GU exam and suggest an ultrasound, and I'll go and examine the patient, and they have a very normal exam. They have no significant swelling, very minimal tenderness, very clear cremasteric reflex. That patient, I'm going to be able to clinically rule it out. But in patients who have acute symptoms and impressive clinical findings, I think our clinical exam is really not sensitive enough to be able to effectively rule out torsion. Sure. That leads us into the discussion of the TWIST score. So there was an attempt to put the classic findings all together into a decision tool. Uh, TWIST stands for Testicular Workup for Ischemia and Suspected Torsion Score. And this was supposed to help risk stratify patients under the age of 18 who presented to the ED with an acute scrotum. So just to tell you a little bit about the score, it ranges from zero to seven, and it has five components. One is testicular swelling. Two is a hard testicle. Three is the absent cremasteric reflex. Four is nausea and or vomiting. And five is a high riding testicle. A study in 2017 in academic EM found that patients with testicular torsion had a statistically significant higher twist score than those without torsion, and that a twist score of 7 had a specificity and positive predictive value of 100% for torsion, but only a sensitivity of 21%. There were a few patients with a low twist score that had testicular torsion. So, Dr. Wolpert, is there really any value in using the twist score in our EM practices to help rule in or rule out torsion? So I think it can help us rule in torsion in a patient with the maximum score of seven. I think in those patients, it's reasonable to speak to urology immediately to consider immediate operative in- intervention and perhaps skip the ultrasound if there is going to be any delay. It's definitely not a rule that's helpful in terms of ruling out torsion. I think there were some concerns just in terms of the number of patients recruited for the study. So there's some study challenges in terms of how we apply it. And then also the fact that there were patients who had low twist scores who ended up being diagnosed with torsion. Once again, just reiterates the point that clinical findings and clinical exam cannot really help us rule out torsion and we need definitive imaging. The notion of investigating with ultrasound and involving urology, they're not necessarily two separate issues. I think this paper looked at the patients with two scores of seven. Perhaps those patients can be taken directly to the OR. Now, that's obviously a surgeon's decision, not my decision. But in a patient that I suspect torsion in highly, I'm often ordering the ultrasound and involving urology at the same time. So by the time the urologist is able to assess the patient, organize the OR, the patient's often able to have that ultrasound. So it's not necessarily one or the other. So I'm not sure this rule is really changing my management. Yeah. I mean, you know, when they come in with testicular torsion written on their forehead, (laughs) we don't need a score to tell us that they have testicular torsion. Most of these clinical decision tools are helpful in the emergency department if we can rule out. And in this case, they can't. So... Yeah, I agree. The twist score isn't very useful. Suffice to say that there's nothing, whether you combine these things in history and physical, that can rule it out. And so these patients need either an ultrasound or to go straight to the OR. And Dr. Walpert, you had mentioned at the beginning of our discussion on torsion that 
you always see Torsion at three in the morning when where you work, there's no ultrasound available. So can you just give us uh, some practical tips about how to deal with that situation? So when is your threshold to call the urologist at three in the morning when someone comes in with an acute scrotum when ultrasound is not available for another four or five hours? So in the classic high-risk patient, acute presentation, young patient, classic clinical findings, I'm going to call urology. I'm also going to arrange for ultrasound. When ultrasound is not available, it often means there's an ultrasound tech on call, but not in-house. So there are certain patients we can advocate for getting an ultrasound after hours. So those are those patients. If you're somewhere where that is not available to you, I think it's still reasonable for a high-risk patient to call a urologist on call. You're never going to be faulted for having a specialist or having an ultrasound tech come in emergently to assess a patient with rule-out torsion, but you're definitely going to be faulted for missing a patient with uh, acute testicular torsion. And from the urologist's perspective, you'll never be faulted for taking someone to the OR to explore their scrotum if they don't have a torsion and you made the wrong diagnosis, named epididymitis. They save their testicle and they're going to go on antibiotics, but you will be faulted in not exploring someone where you thought there might be a torsion. So, you know, it sounds like overtreatment, but at the end of the day, we're quite aggressive. These are young guys and it's their, you know, one shot at saving a testicle. And now for a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade would like to let you know that they are helping EDs during the COVID pandemic to set up additional call schedules and screening clinics. Metricade is giving EDs access to their web-based tool, but more importantly, they're doing all the work of the building and managing of the schedules, helping to build capacity and resilience in our system, doing what they do best. If you're struggling with the logistics of adding coverage to your existing schedule or you're setting up completely new schedules for screening or treatment, let them help you out. They can get a new schedule up and running in a matter of days, leaving you to take care of other matters. Check out metricade.com slash emcases and get in touch with them today. Let's talk a little bit more about imaging. So when I started emergency medicine and I had patients with torsion, I assumed that an ultrasound was excellent at diagnosing testicular torsion, but I've subsequently found out that maybe it's not that excellent. What do the numbers look like, Dr. Wolpert, in terms of the sensitivity and specificity of Doppler ultrasound for diagnosing testicular torsion? So the sensitivity is uh, 88 to 100 percent, and the specificity is 90 percent. So decent numbers. I mean, those are decent sensitivities and specificities, but they're not 100 percent, which is what we would want to see. The cases I think that are really troublesome are the intermittent torsion detorsion and two cases that I've been aware of that were cases of mistorsion where in both cases it was a young person who did end up losing their testicle. Both presented with initial episodes of acute severe scrotal pain who had ultrasounds that showed Doppler flow, and then showed abnormalities. One was interpreted as an epididymitis. One was interpreted as sort of an unclear abnormality that actually eventually the patient was tempted to call the patient back in to repeat an ultrasound and were unable to contact the patient. 
Now, both of those patients were treated, given advice to return. But I think in the patient diagnosed with epididymitis, they weren't given the same advice to return as you would give a patient that you suspected torsion detorsion. So I think in the patient with torsion detorsion, the ultrasound findings not only may take you away from that diagnosis, but may actually really mislead you. So it's just important to keep that in mind. And interestingly, with both of those patients, they both presented really acutely with very severe pain. One of them received IV opiate analgesia, which is not typical for all epididymitis. So I think when you have patients that present dramatically acutely, even if some of your other tests lead you towards different diagnoses, you really have to keep torsion detorsion at the top of your list. Great practical pearl there. Yeah, like in an ideal world, you would have an ultrasound within an hour that would give you a binary result of torsion or non-torsion. And the two limitations is sometimes you don't have the ultrasound, obviously, within the hour. But the other one is you'll be shocked, like Dr. Wolpert's saying, how many times these ultrasounds aren't binary, where they say maybe there's a twist in the cord or maybe there's an area of hypoperfusion, but the artery has flow or whether there's just diminished flow. There's so much variability in these ultrasounds that when in doubt, we obviously uh, book it as an operation, but it's not always completely contributory. But in general, I think everyone would agree if you can get an ultrasound, it certainly helps. I don't think often, aside from those examples where it was to the detriment of the patient, if you can get an ultrasound, I think we all like getting an ultrasound. On a practical note, if I see a patient who I think is high risk for a torsion, I will order the ultrasound and call urology at the same time. And, you know, while I'm speaking to urology, hopefully they're already whisked off to the ultrasound, you know, rather than waiting for the ultrasound report and then calling urology. Really, this is something that if you have a high-risk patient, you should just be calling urology right off the bat. I think it's a great approach. You have the ultrasound cooking, urology knows about it, put some jazz on in the background. Sometimes we get an ultrasound back that shows torsion of the testicular appendage. And sometimes people get mixed up between true testicular torsion and torsion of the testicular appendage. So, Dr. Kukowski, how are these different and how do you manage them differently? Great. So, uh, the testicle basically is an egg on the back, sort of posterior lateral part of the epididymis, which looks like a little cap on it. And then there's a bunch of different embryological remnants on the testicle. There's four or five of them. They all have names that escape me. But one of them is the appendix of the testicle, and it's a tiny little skin tag off the testicle, really. And it can tort on itself and cause excruciating amounts of pain. What medical students remember is this blue dot. I don't know if it actually exists or not, which is where you see that ischemic little blue dot through the scrotum. I don't know if it's like the Loch Ness Monster or if that really exists. I've never seen it, and I don't think I've ever met anyone who has. But that's the classic physical examination finding. Torsion of the appendix is really different because it's supportive management, it's analgesia because the appendage itself is not critical and there's no indication, you know, if the testicle has flow and the appendage is torted, you can go on without that appendage. When we do torsions, one of the things we do during the operation is take care of the appendage to make sure that it doesn't uh, tort in the future, which is a fairly typical part of dealing with the testicle that has torted. But um, not a surgical emergency, certainly supportive care, and quite rare. Yeah, I've, I've never seen it. One day I want to have a standardized patient, and I want to do like a big blue dot with magic marker on the scrotum. <laughs> See if our residents pick up on the blue dot. Yeah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about manual detorsion. 
in the emergency department. So I've read in textbooks that manual detorsion, you know, they call it the open book motion where you rotate 450 degrees medially to laterally, that that's a treatment option for testicular torsion. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, maybe if I was on a canoe trip with my son 200 kilometers away from civilization, then yeah, I'd probably try this manual detorsion. But in the ED, is there any role for attempting manual detorsion? Well, I think the one concern is that the open book method assumes that the testicle has twisted inward and the testicle can twist in either direction. So in some cases, you may actually be worsening the anatomical abnormality. So again, it's not something I would try when I have specialist assistance. This patient needs to go to the OR regardless. But yes, if you're in the woods and far from medical care, maybe it's something you can try. So two nights ago in Toronto, a testicle was manually detorted. There are people that swear that they can do it really well. I've never done it despite attempts and never believed that it could really be done. Uh, one of my colleagues at St. Joe's, I give him credit, Dr. Henry Yan, has uh, detorted, I think, five testicles manually. Now, Dr. Wilpert's totally right. It's In some ways, it's an academic discussion. These folks still need to go to the OR. But uh, it's an amazing idea that we can do something external to the body. It's almost like, you know, the Leopold's maneuvers for kids that are breech, babies that are breech. And they, it's like such a crazy idea that we could do it. So, so I've never been successful. I am so skeptical like everyone else. But there are folks I trust and believe that have shown they went to radiology. They showed torsion. They did the maneuver. They repeated the ultrasound. And there was beautiful flow to the gonad. So it's certainly real. At the end of the day, like the kid's going to go to the OR within an hour anyways. Even if you detort them, you're going to pex through the testicle. But it's possible. That's why I'm never going to take my son camping. <laughs> <laughs> what a sad life. Not until he's 40. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if up to a third of these can be torting in the opposite direction and you just be worsening it, it's, you're definitely taking a chance there. So probably best reserved for the real remote zero access and hope that it's torting inward and not outward when you try that open book technique. All right. So we've done relatively deep dives into testicular torsion. But before we go, Dr. Kikowski, I just wanted to ask you, what are your top three or four things you wish ED docs knew about that sometimes maybe they don't know about when it comes to urologic emergencies that we haven't talked about it already to, uh, in this podcast? Um, I'll share three things. Two of them are related to imaging. We didn't talk about a condition called a penile fracture. Penile fracture is a tear in the tunic albuginia. So like priapism, we talked about great blood flow into the penis during an erection creates a very highly pressurized uh, cylinder, which is the erection itself. And if that erection gets torted or hits up against a pubic bone, you can actually get a hole in it called a penile fracture where blood escapes. And sometimes there's reluctance to get an ultrasound in this, similar to the torsion conversation where we don't want to delay management uh, because of imaging. The, the, s the school of thought is kind of changing to realize that it's really not a eight-case emergency, a penile fracture. And in fact, outcomes are a lot better if we know for sure that this is a fracture and where the actual tear is. So um, classic teaching in all of our textbook is if penile fracture is an emergency and call urology right away and book the OR. 
when in fact, I, I think in general now, optimal care is to get an ultrasound, prove where it is, and uh, you can wait until the sun comes out to call the urologist to deal with it. I, I think guidelines around that will change probably, but I, that's sort of what's, uh, what appears to be uh, the case. I think a 7, 8 a.m. ultrasound uh, with a call to urology before or after is totally reasonable. I've been I've been taking care of a lot of these folks uh, around Toronto, and it's really nice to fix them in a controlled environment and with uh, the help of imaging to know where to make your incision. There's really only been one good study showing that a delayed repair, which is uh, up to two weeks or up to 10 days, has uh, similar uh, outcomes as an immediate repair, with the advantage of a delayed being that you can really control it, wait for some of the swelling to come down, and, and really pick where that incision is going to be. It's not, it's not like a heart attack anymore about the penis. Great update. The second uh, point for imaging that I think is uh, a great thing to keep in mind is in just the run-of-the-mill kidney stones, I mean, the gold standard is really a non-contrast CT and some people get ultrasounds, but the utility of a plain film kidney, ureter, bladder uh, x-ray is high in that in many sort of big sites, patients will ultimately, if they have a stone that needs treatment, either be able to, you know, wait it out or get endoscopic treatment through the ureter surgically or have what's called external shockwave where we target the stone with ultrasound waves. And the decision of what a patient is a candidate for has to do with whether that stone is radio-opaque or not. So when I see a patient in clinic that was discharged from the emergency department with a, let's say, ultrasound-proven 6-millimeter mid-ureteric stone, and I want to tell them their options are, we can wait this out, someone can go in and laser it endoscopically, or we could do ultrasound, I don't know if we can really do that ultrasound treatment without that KUB x-ray. So I end up sending them quickly to get an x-ray and come back to the clinic, uh, which uh, would be nice to have that from the start, as well as a urine pH because the urine pH is another way to indicate what kind of stone this is and what kind of treatment would be the best for that stone. So that was number two for imaging. So penile fracture is not as urgent as y'all think, and we could probably uh, wait until 8 a.m. The KUB x-ray is is good. With the KUB, you know, emergency doctors like things pretty black and white. I'm just trying to imagine saying, okay, well, all patients with kidney stones not only require their CT or ultrasound in the emergency department, but also require an X-ray. This is something that we should be doing as a standard. You know, there's flow issues. While I understand the value of the KUB in your decision making, I wonder how applicable that is to the emergency department. I mean, I think our patients uh, are waiting a fair bit of time for ultrasound and CT, unfortunately. So I think ordering a KUB while you're waiting for those tests, uh, if that's something the specialist wants in follow-up is reasonable. Uh, One place I worked that was sort of on the requirement list for their outpatient urology stone clinic referral. So that just became part of our routine management. It also, I think, probably depends on the stone. If I have a patient with a two, isolated two millimeter distal ureteric stone, they're not going to be a candidate for lithotripsy. But in somebody with a proximal stone, a larger stone, a number of stones, then I understand if that's going to be helpful uh, for the urologist in clinic, I'm going to make an effort to do it. I mean, if 
the x-ray machine's broken, if the patient's demanding to leave, you know, obviously we'll do what we can to help our surgical colleagues. But I didn't realize sort of how helpful it was in terms of treatment decision making. And these patients with stones, you know, they wait a long time to see urology. They're coming back to emerge uh, with pain quite frequently. So I think if we can maximize the ability for the urologist to actually intervene once they're seeing them, then I'm I'm happy to help out. Yeah. Okay. So suffice to say that a KUB x-ray should be considered A, in patients who have large stones, proximal stones, uh, who are more likely to require uh, invasive therapy, because that'll really help out. If you're set up in a way that there's going to be a delay to your ultrasound or CT, and you can get a KUB uh, quickly without affecting your patient's length of stay in the emergency department, that's also a reasonable time to get one. Now, is the scout film on a CT scan sufficient? I was just about to bring that up. Sometimes. So sometimes every CT scan, before they actually put the patient through the scanner, they do a scout. And so you have a, it's just a variable quality. So sometimes they're very obvious stone you can find on the scout, and that's what we would always do first. But if you can't see it on the scout, doesn't mean you won't see it on a sort of specified KUB x-ray. So you had a a third thing that you'd like ED docs to know about uh, that sometimes they don't know about. Yeah, maybe they always do. It's um, in patients with two good kidneys and a unilateral stone. A lot of times we'll get called for consideration of whether this is an urgent indication to deal with an obstructing stone because the patient has an AKI. So, you know, the the pain has settled, the patient's voiding, the patient's well and non-septic, but the creatinine's gone up from a baseline of 70 to 130. And uh, I think by and large, this isn't an issue, but uh, one of the pearls is to sort of hydrate that patient because chances are they're nauseous and vomiting and feeling unwell. And this AKI is a is a f- volume issue. And with some hydration, that creatinine will come down nicely and they can be managed as an outpatient. Now, the patients with uh, significant renal dysfunction, so one, those are patients obviously we're definitely imaging, uh, but it's often interesting in those patients that the stones unearthing something congenital or some sort of abnormality they weren't aware of. So I agree with you that the the AKI is not just the stone itself. I saw a patient, young patient, early 20s, uh, with a stone, actually with a fever. So he underwent imaging and we identified his congenital uh, absence of his one kidney. Wow, there you go. Hmm. Oh, he, he was an A case to the so that, OR. That's, that's a good reason to yeah. Yeah, do something. The last question I have for you, Dr. Krakowski, in terms of the urologist perspective, it seems to me that there's been a trend in the last five or 10 years to not aggressively treat and admit patients who could potentially have a septic stone. So let's say you have a patient with a mid-ureteric stone that's sizable and they have a fever or they have a urinalysis that's obviously showing an infection. It seems to me that there's this trend towards not admitting some of these patients. What's your opinion in terms of what we should do with patients who could potentially have a septic stone? Yeah, so I would say an obstructing stone with a fever and no other obvious uh, source of that fever is very concerning. That patient needs attention, needs to not leave the hospital, um, and needs to have that urine diverted away from the stone. They can get quite sick, and the sort of the longer you wait on them, I mean, antibiotics can sort of cool a patient off, but if they're obstructed, there's urine sitting up there on the ureter and the kidney that'll eventually get into the blood. 
right? So these patients go septic and get quite sick. They can go to the ICU. They can die if untreated. So I think a real um, sepsis caused by an obstructing stone is, is an emergency. The gray area that sometimes we have is a patient with an obstructing stone who is well, who doesn't have a fever, who has a little bit of pain or no pain, and has leukocytes in their urine. Because to that, you can say, you know, stone itself will cause leukocytes, nitrites are negative, they're not acting septic. So, so that patient, fine, is uh, not a septic stone and, and not by definition. But I think uh, we can't underestimate how quickly a septic stone can go from sort of low-grade fever and feeling unwell to dropping their blood pressure, hypotension, and all that. All right. Well, that was an extraordinarily enlightening learning experience for me. So many pearls in there that I'm going to take to work for my next shift. Thank you so much, both of you, for your insights into the wonderful world of urologic emergencies. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks, guys. That was fun. Really that was way more that. fun than I thought it that would was be. So, me too. Yeah.